Hello, welcome to Midlife Athlete Podcast. Uh, I'm co-presenter Jason Smith. And um, Greg, how are you? I'm very well. Very well excited about today. Yes, very excited about today. Um, it's, well, uh, it's a real pleasure, I think, for, for both Greg and I, because we are midlife cyclists, to welcome uh, Phil uh, Cavill, who um, some listeners hopefully will know that he is the uh, founder and, and director of um, CycleFit in London, or one, one of them. Um, and some, some of you may have even used his services. But Phil has done a sterling job of um, writing a book called The Midlife Cyclist, which uh, is out uh, right now in all good book uh, dis- distribution places. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Phil. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's uh, what um, the thing that really uh, sort of got me is, I mean, Phil, you've been a cyclist for many years. Um, what was it that sort of you know, got you to start to sort of think, do you, know, do you know, I might just write a book on, on the midlife cyclist. Um, yes, it's true. I have been a cyclist a long time. Um, and um, I got started because of my unique position, I suppose, working with professionals um, like yourself and Greg and podiatrists and doc- surgeons and doctors and clients we're in this unique position where we're in the middle of a lot of people trying to help clients, a lot of them middle-aged, function better on their bikes. So it's a unique position and we've been in that unique position for 20 years. So in that time we've collated a lot of experience um, and so it just seemed that to be that I needed to write all this down, what we'd learnt, what we hadn't learnt um, and try and share some of this. Um, and then we ran a series of lectures called the Midlife Cyclist a few years ago. It was very popular here. And then we ran a, a further series. A lot of the tribe of people I use in the book are in that lecture series. So um, and um, so it was just a, I just I was aware I was in a very privileged position, working with clients every day, working with um, very very unique professionals every day in ancillary expertise fields and the idea of knitting all that together in some kind of join the dots exercise was very tempting so that's really it that's what I did and it just took a lot longer than I thought (laughs) (laughs) but I think uh, for me anyway and I think think Greg shares this you've done an amazing job of sort of joining those dots pulling together uh, and stringing together um, uh, specialist areas, you know, endocrinologists, cardiologists, and so on, exercise physiologists, um, and then making sense of that for for an ordinary person who is a midlife cyclist and, and maybe thinking, well, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? What effect is this going to have on me? So, uh, I think certainly it's it, it's a it's a great read from that perspective. And um and I'm sh- was that was that a sort of again a conscious effort on your part to to sort of be the storyteller as it were. Yes, it, I suppose it was really. Um, I was aware that um, when I was writing it, certainly chapter three, the dreaded chapter three, will I die, um, which is almost like a James Joyceian chapter that you just have to try and get through. Um, I was aware that you know the science could become quite heavy. Uh, and quite um, numbers driven. So I, I really wanted to, um, if I could, try and add a narrative to it. So, um, and, and I, I tried to write the book, and I didn't write the book like this, but I tried to have in mind that almost like it was writing a novel, that just, you know, you were just telling stories, and whether the stories could be about the heart, or they could be about the endocrine system, or they could be about your knee, but essentially it was storytelling, really. Um, that sounds like I made it all up, doesn't it? But, um, <laughs> but so, yeah, I, I don't know if that was the question. Uh, well, I think but- that's, I think that's why it reads well. I mean, th- th- before you, before you, you came on, Phil, we were, Jason and I were chatting and thinking, well, for, for both of us, um, we agreed that, that, that chapter, will I die is probably the one to really dig into most. I mean, that is, it's, uh, certainly within our chat now because it's, it's so, 
it's really fascinating and in, and really interesting uh, and very important. Um, so yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I think it was great. A great chapter. I, I wrote that chapter first, actually, before I wrote anything else in the book. I wrote that chapter. So I wrote that chapter, uh, and it's the longest chapter by far. I think it's yeah, it's probably double the length of any other chapter. Mm. And I wrote that one first, and then built the book. That, in a sense, was the book's calling card. Uh, that was what motivated me to write the book. It's like we have to get this out here now, because there was so much misinformation out there in the populist press, and it was frightening people, or. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't frightening people enough, who knows, um, but it, it just needed to be discussed so people could make better decisions about their how they exercised. And so that was, uh, in a sense, the Will I Die chapter, even though it is difficult, and I accept that it can be quite difficult and quite technical, um, I, it is the book's calling card, actually. Um, and um, it's, you know, it, 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 there's, there's six different... Um, I think there's six different cardiologists that contributed to the knowledge mm. that's in that chapter yeah. in one way or another, you know, and that's quite remarkable, isn't it? You know, when you think about it, you know, and four of them are cyclists. So four of the cardiologists that contributed to that chapter are cyclists. One of them, um, you know, is a, is a European pursuit champion. Um, so, you know, that, there's quite a lot of expertise in that cha- in that chapter that I was trying to curate and present. Well, and we, and you we, did an excellent dig- job of it. Absolutely. Should we dig into um, that straight away? <laughs> well, no, I, I think actually before <laughs> before we before we do dig into that straight away, I tell us really um, the middle middle the, the sort of definition or what or, or what sort of brought about a midlife cyclist sort of craze because. One of the things that um, I had always, I know some people refer to it as the Olympics and that was the thing that inspired people and I'm sure it did. And uh, I always think that um, the bike to work scheme has been a, a, a been a, an influence as well with people getting into cycling. But I was struck by your interpretation of what you were seeing, which I think is probably more accurate than anything else, coming through the cycle fit shops and what in, what you think inspired midlife cyclists. And I wondered if you could just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And I think in the book I call it the lancification effect or the lancification of the industry. And, and, and I might be wrong about this, but I, I don't sense that I am. Um, I, I think um, whether or not you love or loathe Lance Armstrong, he had a galvanizing effect in our industry. He he took people from other sports and, and drew them into cycling. Um, partly with his success, partly with his bombastic nature, and partly because of the cancer or actually you know very very greatly because of the cancer scare and surviving cancer which was you know was had a very he had a very small percentage chance of surviving so we were just seeing people coming into the store quoting Lance Armstrong they weren't even cyclists they didn't really had never really cycled but they were just motivated to get a bike and start riding a bike and 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 it was just it was amazing it was phenomenal late 90s early 2000s the Lance just had this kind of gravitational pull from other sports into cycling, and I do think that was the the bigger the kind of the big tidal change that we were seeing, um, and it was tremendously exciting to be part of. And that's why I put it in the book without trying to make any kind of comments about what came later. That mm. that I don't think cycling would be in the position it's in now anywhere in the world without him. Mm. I think you know that that. That that he, he it really was a huge gravitational pull, I think. Yeah, I I thought that was really uh, really interesting. Um, so will will exercise kill us? I think that's that's <laughs> that's obviously the uh, the main calling card that we want to dive into. And and um, uh, Greg, well, I, I thought I thought it was a fantastic um, title for the, for the chapter. Um, it, it was like rather the cyclist and his heart, or the cyclist. You know, I, I, it could have been so many different different ones, but that was the for me that was a fantastic one because it was debunking some myths about uh, what people were seeing, what, what the evidence was was with um, um, endurance athletes and their hearts. I don't know if you could if you could expand a bit on that, Phil. Yeah. So over the last few years, there's been these articles coming out in the press that the research was showing that exercise in middle-aged athletes particularly men not women was uh, damaging their hearts um, and 
putting them at risk of, you know, of essentially heart attacks. Um, and I read lots of this information and was in contact with with one of the cardiologists there, Dr. Nigel Stevens, who's an exceptionally good cyclist. And Nigel and I were discussing this, and Nigel gave a lecture here about the subject. Um, and then I started to talk to the people who were actually doing the research, Ahmed Magani, who also lectured here at CycleFit, Dr. Gemma Parry-Williams, who's one of the cardiologists I extensively consulted with. And, we, and I, it, with them and with their help and with them holding my hand uh, and guiding me through what's quite complex research, uh, they allowed me to understand the nuance of what was going on, which was, yes, um, if you were a lifelong exerciser, so somebody who's always exercised a very good level, club level and above, so whether that's a runner or a cyclist, but let's talk about cycling. Um, you know, so I'm nearly 60, I'm 60 in a few months time. So someone like me who raced for decades and now still cycles, there's likely to be or possibly could be some cardiac remodeling. Um, and it was that remodeling that came out in a research that Ahmad Magani did with um, Sanjay Sharma, uh, a big paper that came out where it showed that the if you had the, the two cohorts, the control group who were either moderate exercisers or sedentary and then you had the exercise group who were you know very very good club athletes and above um, they were more likely to have plaques in their coronary arteries now, plaques are, are blockages if you like or, or matter in the on, on the lining of the coronary artery but that wasn't the whole story the, the whole story was if you actually did loads more tests and looked at the structure of those plaques what they consisted of, the morphology of the plaques was different. So the plaques in the athlete group tended to be calcific. So they were they consisted of calcium and were quite and were quite stable. And then in the non-athlete group, they might have less plaques, but the plaques they had were um, soft or a mixture of soft, fatty cholesterol lipids um, um, and calcium, or just soft. Now, they're inherently much less stable. So they might have less plaques, but they were more, they were less stable. So they were, so they, they were more at risk. And of course, this, that kind of level of complexity doesn't come out in a couple of hundred words in a, in a, in the populist press. So, um, and there was, that's one element of that chapter. Um, there's lots of other elements, arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, lot, you know, fibrosis, lots of things are discussed there. But there's a sense in which, some of these cardiac remodelings that we have as athletes, some of them might well be protective. And as Dr. Nigel Stevens says, or someone says in the book, I can't remember who said it now. Well, if if we're all at risk, where are the bodies? You know, why? <laughs> we, you know, where are they? Where, where, you know, why aren't we seeing the streets littered with mammals on a Sunday, where they, you know, they're blowing out their blowing their biscuits and dropping off their bikes like flies? Well, they're just clearly not. So something's going on. Yes, we have this kind of flag. But on the other hand, if you actually look at the, what the flag's telling us, it's the, the picture is more nuanced. And so that was the message I wanted to get across. And to get that across actually requires quite a lot of narrative uh, and understanding, uh, which is what that chapter's around. Uh, and, and also, it's really important to get across that not, not everything is known about these processes, not even by research cardiologists. Uh, because we're the first group that's run through this process of trying to beat ourselves senseless with exercise into middle age. Our parents didn't, uh, their parents definitely didn't, and their parents wouldn't have even been alive at our age. So, you know, it, it, it's a very recent phenomenon, people my age trying to extract performance from their bodies. So not much is known. So you've really got to kind of look at the data very clear, clearly, look at the research studies and, and make your best assessment of risk and what's going on. And the cardiologists were just fantastic with me at doing this, endlessly patient, uh, explaining and re-explaining to a slightly dense student what was going on. Uh, and it's that that I've tried to present in that chapter in a very clear way, uh, without frightening anybody or needlessly reassuring everybody. And the, and the at-risk group, if there is an at-risk group, is not necessarily the lifelong exerciser, the, 
it's just keeping going what they've always done. Maybe, possibly, the more the at-risk group is the, is the person that starts exercising from nothing, sedentary, and then just starts exercising very, very, very hard, relentlessly, too hard, every day, six days a week, you know, very, very hard, intense sessions. Now, they're probably fine, but they may well be the group that are more actually more at risk because we don't know and they don't know what's going on with their body uh, because they've never pushed it that hard before. Um, so in the book, I think I say, I can't really remember, but I think I say everybody should go through a minimum screening, but that group should probably delve a little bit deeper and say to their GP, listen, I'm now an addict of cycling uh, and and I it, and that addiction means that I'm doing X, Y and Z and I need to put some structure behind this for the sake of people that love me on this planet. Um, I, I think one of the um, things that I was struck by is, and you, you mentioned it there, the sort of remodeling, uh, the cardiac remodeling that has seemingly happening to those of us who have been at this for, for, for quite some time. Um, and it, and is it fair to say that when you were having those conversations with those cardiologists, they don't really know much about what is going on? And I just wondered if if that was the case and also whether you were aware of any um, any of those cardiologists or, or perhaps uh, their peers that are starting to delve into that now and do some research. Yeah, that, that, and all the longitudinal studies, Jason, are on this. I mean, so, you know, um, they're all doing longitudinal studies on this. So some of the cardiac remodeling is known. If you're a lifelong exerciser, your VO2, your VO2 maximum is likely to be 60% greater than your sedentary partner. So it's, it's just, so a lot of it is very, very good. Your pulse is going to be in is going to be lower your heart's going to be what's called bradycardic so you've got a very low a very low pulse this is part of a whole general subset that comes under athlete's heart so you're likely to have an enlarged left ventricle slightly enlarged right ventricle you know the cavities if you like are enlarged your heart is having to do you know 20 times more work so it adapts to the body is adaptive that's what evolution's all about your, your heart's adapted to deal with the loads that you keep putting upon it and those adaptations lead to remodeling. Uh, and, and most of it is unbelievably good. Do you know what? All of it may be unbelievably good. We don't know yet. But some of it is unbelievably good. Great VO2, um, um, you know, low heart rate. But some of it might just be slightly risky. Um, I've got an arrhythmia in my heart. Um, and my heart is what's called, I've brad called bradycardia. Uh, so my heart runs too slow at night and starts to skip beats and sometimes misses. Sometimes uh, there's quite big pauses in my beats at night. Um, so I have to see a cardiologist regularly. And at some point, if it all gets too bad, they'll have to put in a pacemaker. Now, that's almost certainly I was born a little bit like that, slightly with a slow heart rate. And, you know, and decades of endurance exercise have made that worse. And so that's a so that's a, that's what's going on for me. I can't talk for other people. Now, some of that might be quite good because my pulse is so low that it my I probably my heart isn't working very hard when I'm talking to you or I'm walking around doing my job. Um, so it's probably quite good in that I'm in, I'm not putting my body under too much load at rest. But at night time when it goes really low, it starts to fall apart. Um, so. It's it, it, what's what the best advice is, is what's not known about general midlife biology. Make sure you make up for in knowing your own individual biology, you know, and by default and design. I now mo I now know my individual biology, bradycardia, slow heart rate, arrhythmia. Uh, so the, whilst I don't know what's going on for everybody in general midlife heart architecture, I know what's going on for mine. And I think that chapter, I hope, implores people, if you love cycling, you love exercising, spend a bit of time finding about your own heart architecture, which is quite easy to do uh, on a fairly low level. Um, and then, you know, don't you? And then you can make a risk assessment. Um, does that make sense? I don't know if I've answered yeah, no, the question. Absolutely. You. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. but what was interesting, though, is the when you talk about the difference between the men and the women, 
is that uh, yeah, a lot of these risks are predominant, say exclusively, but certainly predominantly in the men. And that uh, women, you just don't see the same sort of uh, changes happening. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is, Greg. And 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 um, again, this add this into the unknowns. We don't really know why. Is it 30, 40 years of estrogen protects them? Um, estrogen, I think, is quite anti-inflammatory. Does that prevent atrial stretch? Um, why is it that of the... Uh, of the you know number of men who drop have these heart attacks during the year why does it not seem to happen to women we just don't see it and in the last chapter the mindful cyclist um i kind of start to hypothecate a little bit well you know maybe there's it's more nuanced than we think um but certainly it doesn't seem to affect women uh and nobody knows why it, it possibly is multifactorial protective effect of east effect of estrogen um uh, they don't seem to get atrial fibrillation. Men have five times the incidence of atrial fibrillation, uh, where the heart you know goes very very fast. Uh, that doesn't seem to affect women on the same level. I mean, I've got so many clients who've had AF. You probably know people yourself who have had or have got AF. Yeah. That seems to be more of a male phenomenon than a female. Why? We just don't know. Um, and now AF is worrying at the time for the individual. It, it's actually very generally very treatable as most of these things are very treatable actually um but it doesn't seem to affect women and we don't really know why uh, i certainly don't know why because i'm a bike fitter not a cardiologist but even the cardiologists are not entirely sure why that is uh, um, and women don't seem to have the exercise induced uh, myocardial infarctions mis heart attacks that men seem to have um and since I've written the book, I keep getting contacted by people saying, oh, by the way, I read the book and I was just busting my Strava record. And guess what? You know, or, or something like that, you know. And it, so I'm getting quite a lot of feedback and I have not had any feedback from any women yet. Um, now, you could also say, have enough women been in, involved in the research? Is there something about which men are self-selecting for the research versus which women are self-selecting for the research. All these things are possible. All these things are possible. But it seems to be the case that men are more deleteriously affected than women. Um, and not, not not much is known, or well, not everything is known as to why that might be at the moment. I mean, one of your, I mean, and it certainly resonated with me, but one of your hypotheses is, is us men uh, are a little bit, um, we have a bit of egos. We push ourselves a little bit too far, probably, you know, way more in terms of not just the intensity of a session, but probably more sessions than we should and so on. And I, as, as a cycling coach, I've certainly seen when I've coached women, it's almost having to sort of encourage them and give them confidence. Whereas the men, you're almost trying to sort of hold them back a little bit because they're just, they're just too gung ho. And that resonated with me. And again, as have you, I mean, you said you haven't had much feedback from women, but, but is, is that something that you're also seeing in the feedback that you're, that you're getting? Yes. And I, I was trying to be quite careful about how I presented this information. Um, as you can imagine, um, it's, you know, you want to try and get the, the information and data out there and you want to have a conversation about it, but you also don't want to start, you know, saying all men, you know, work out harder than all women. I mean, it's just clearly nonsense. So you, it, it is a, it is a balanced, balanced of probability type conversation. And that's why Gemma, Gemma Parry Williams, one of the cardiologists, and she, she, she's an amazing, actually amazing clinician and academic. Um, and so, you know, she, and I, this came out of many discussions that she and I had, uh, which I have taped uh, so I could then transcribe and help me with the book. And I'd love to, with her permission one day, either um, publish them or, or encourage her to come and do a podcast with you because she really is very, very incredibly entertaining and insightful. But it just came out of a conversation with her. It's like, well, is there something about the way men deal with inflammation? And inflammation is a word that if I have one regret in the book, um, it, I use the word inflammation so much and I do try and define it, but I don't think I define it well enough. Um, and I would in the, in the rewrite, I would seek to define it better. But Gemma says 
is there something about men's the way men's inflammation burden they just layer inflammation upon each so too much coffee too much wine too much high level training too much stress that they don't mediate properly or deal with properly it's just a layer of inflammation and inflammation is an, a substrate of inflammation can be a problem you know in terms of disease in every disease whether that's dementia or cancer or heart disease inflammation is always flagged up by clinicians is there something about the way men burden themselves with inflammation that is causing problems and i put it in the book because i found it so bloody compelling mm, and that's yeah. why it's in there you know it's like bloody hell Gemma. i've got to mention this um and i did you know and um, I'm glad that I did, but it is a bit controversial. But I think it's just a case of making you think. I mean, that that makes you think. If you, ha- I mean, Jason and I have been chatting about this sort of stuff when we did the, the last um, recording we did well, last Friday was about uh, heart rate variability, which you which you come on to in the book as well, yeah. about how uh, controlling that and monitoring that is a great way to is insightful into potentially. Uh, potentially insightful in terms of levels of inflammation and how you can try and control that and how you then uh, use that information to for your training to 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 optimize your training but also for life you know how stressed are you and this this can give you an insight into that and I think if you just stop and think and and these podcasts I've done and chatting to various experts has really made me reevaluate how I train I used Jason would always laugh at me I'm just doing high intensity stuff all the time and now I'm beginning to, to to rethink that quite a lot and starting to listen to the or understand and appreciate the fact that I'm not 25 anymore and I I can't do what I used to be able to do and I need to be able to um with with the right information and the right data be able, be able, or at least just with my own perceptions of my body work smarter and that's yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, thing, the problem with doing too many, and I'm not a coach, and this is where Jason should jump in and just cut me off, um, pull the plug. But the but the uh, but the problem with doing um, high intensity sessions over and over again is that those sessions are acutely inflammatory, mm. and your body doesn't know whether you're running away from a leopard or whether you're just simply training your. It does. It can't make that distinction because your your genome is a quarter of a million years old essentially, and you're and you can't make a distinction. Is, is this person trying in mortal danger of running away from a leopard or is this just social training? Can't make a distinction. We're not, you know, we're not that complex in that way. Um, and in the book, I think I give the example of my dog, who's the friendliest dog in the world, has also got the deepest bark in the world. <laughs> yeah. And then he barks in the middle of the night because he hears a fox. And, I, and, 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 you know, and I'm, my wife sits bolt up and says, we're being burgled. And I go and then calm the dog down, who immediately goes back to sleep. And I don't. I don't go back to sleep. Because I'm not an apex predator. He's 99% wolf. He's apex predator. He's not fighting of anything or anybody. I'm not an apex predator. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a subsistence hunter. So, you know, so I then take half an hour to talk myself back into a parasympathetic state. Um, not sure where I'm going with any of that, by the way. But the, you know, so I do think that that Jason is right, Greg. That that your that your training is it's not only not good for you actually and not good for your health. But it's actually not good for your training. No, you'll actually exactly. you'll actually go a lot faster mm. if you drop out a few of those high intensity mm. sessions um, and do something else instead. What you do would be up to Jason. So that was the point. But if if uh, I do I do think that that if that comes across in the book that everyone puts under the microscope what they're doing um, and is it sensible what they're doing, um, then I think that would be a good outcome. And if someone says to me, and I've had this feedback listen i just don't really care how much harm i'm doing i just enjoy smashing myself senseless until you know blood dribbles out my eardrums it's like well that, crack on that this book is of no use to you whatsoever please go ahead because you've only got one criteria and that's to smash yourself senseless if you mix in other criteria the book might have something to say to you um, and I, and I, Phil, I think you've done a, an admirable job of the book, and that's why we were so keen to have you on because it just resonated with the sort of conversations that we also felt needed to be put out there to help. It, it just, just as Greg said, just make people stop and think and evaluate. And, and as you say, if they decide to 
to, to, to smash themselves, well, so be it. But yeah. there'll be others who will reflect and think, okay, I, I, I need to seriously think and readjust and, 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 and take that course of action. And I, 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 it would be lovely if Greg could actually let me uh, devise some of his sessions, but I'm not sure he would. <laughs> I, 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 you know, well, the thing is that I'm not doing much cycling at the moment. I will be next year, but once I get these, this burpee challenge out of the way, then, uh, then I'll be fine. But, but other than that, <laughs> I'm, I'm on it. I haven't done, I haven't done a high intensity bike session in months. I'm doing all low level stuff. The Steven Sealer episode, you know, that straight away, I was like, okay, I was rethinking and the 80 20, which is, which is another thing you, you, you mentioned, Phil. You, yeah, what was great about this, the one section with the training, the four, I think it was chapter four, um, where you say, well, forget about the, you know, there's three zones you need to think about. Not the five or six you might see in, in, in heart rate zones, but three training zones. Um, and then, and the middle one we, is a bit blurry. So let's not forget about that. So it's the high zone and the low zone. So can you expand a bit on that? Because that, that goes back to our, our, our talk with Stephen Sealer, uh, Professor mm-hmm. Stephen Sealer. So again, it sort of resonates. Yeah. And this came out of conversation, conversations that I had with Dr. John Baker, team physiologist. Um, Dr. David Hulse, who's a team doctor, and also uh, Dr. Garth Fox, um, all of which I've known for many, many years. I've worked with Dave Hulse um, as our kind of key referral um, for issues we have at CycleFit for a decade and a half. And, and we all kind of were saying the same thing, and they were saying the same thing. And I think this is where this is an example where I was curating rather than originating yeah, you know yeah what do i know about this stuff other than my own dreadful training discipline going back 40 years but so this is where i really was listening and then linking and joining dots between all three of them they were all saying the same thing and then john baker went a bit further and went and do you know what i've got millions of kilometers of data that tells me this you know you guys are out there and you are just in a whirlwind of doom um and <laughs> You know, and if that's what you want to do, fine. But if you actually want to progress in the sport and progress as human beings, there's probably a better strategy. He didn't say that bit, by the way, I did. And so that's when we came up with this idea of just just, 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 just keep it really, really simple. Mm. It's so easy to follow. Um, and am I going hard? Am I going easy? And if in doubt, go hard once a week. You know, go for it once a week, really you know, and that probably, I'm nearly 60. I cannot do more than one hard session a week. That's it. Those days of me doing a criterium on Tuesday, mountain bike race Thursday, time trial Thursday, all prep for a nice road race on Sunday are decades gone. I've got one bullet in my gun and I, and I, that I can fire once a week. And that's great. That's great that I've got it, you know. And, and so I've got one hard session in me a week. If I try and do two... It think you know I'm not going as hard as I think I am, um, and you know it's it's a fool's paradise. Um, well, it, if you could, well, I don't know if you you were saying at the start of the uh, uh, before we went on uh, live that that uh, you wrote this a couple of years ago, so there might be some things that you're not quite um, uh, quite quite remember from the book. But those set those what you're making simple, and I, I love what you wrote in the book was that. Effectively, the the low part of the uh, of 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 the the intensity is is anything less than eighty percent of your maximum heart rate, which actually sounds quite high. It does. Um, yeah. But um, uh, based on um, reading a bit more into the book, they're saying, well, actually, probably better to be sixty to seventy percent, which again, which coincides with what Stephen Sealer was saying about doing you know, majority of your work at sixty to seventy percent of your of your maximum heart rate. And then you throw in the the occasional high effort stuff, and that's anything above eighty seven percent of your maximum heart rate. Yeah. Uh, and then stuff in the stuff in the middle, it as you say, it's a bit blurry. You don't know too much about it, so let's forget it. And that's actually really simple. I love that. That's really good. Yeah, and, and John Baker and Dave Holtz put a bit more colour into that. Um, in the conversations, I'm not sure if I put this in the book or not. As you say, um, it's a it's a while since I wrote some of it. They uh, they actually said, do you know what the easy sessions when you're riding easy, they actually almost can't be easy enough. Mm. It's like they, mm. however easy you think it is, you know, double down on easy, 
And, um, and I was like, seriously? Absolutely. He said, yeah, it's not, it's almost impossible to go too easy. When you go and do that three, three hour ride, you know, and it's meant to be an easy day, you know, really go easy. You know, that's the whole idea is, it's oxidative. You know, you're building mitochondria, or, you know, it, you're putting back into the bank rather than taking out. Yeah. It's impossible to go too hard, too easy. And I love that. And it really has empowered me now in my exercise to actually just sit back and enjoy the process of doing those sessions. Um, so, yeah, if that comes across, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. But I can't take much credit for that. That really did come from the people that I was, whose information I was curating. Well, you, you're d- delivering the message, and that's the no, important thing. Absolutely. But the, the, sorry, the, one more bit that f- on from that is that you then take uh, this uh, the idea of the VO2 max and the functional th- um, uh, threshold uh, FTP. level. Uh, yeah, FTP. And and you're saying, well, actually, and, and, and it's something that you think, when you think about it, you think, oh, God, that's right. If I know my VO2 max, what am I going to do with that number? What do I do with it? And it's similar with the FTP because it's at 20 minutes or, or an hour. Well, is, how is that functional, really functional for some cyclists? So now you're saying, well, forget all that and, and just go for perceived effort. And I think that's a, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way of looking at it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Jason might want to come in here because I, I mean, FTP has become the gold standard, really. Functional threshold power has become the god that we worship. So, I mean, I do, I'm aware that this is controversial, uh, but I don't think FTP is important for most, most midlife athletes, actually. I think there's other things that are more important for them, um, and that's developing their endurance oxidative functions. Because essentially, um, humans are endurance animals. That's what we evolved to be. You know, you can't outrun a squirrel, Greg. Um, <laughs> you know, you just simply can't. I can't outrun a, a very small rodent. I mean, it's like we're not very fast. You know, the fastest man in the world is not is going to struggle to outrun most mammals. We're not very fast. What we have is endurance. That's what we're good at. That's what we evolved to do and to be. So train those systems. And the older you get, it's safe and it's fun. Um, and it's inherently good for you to train those systems that, you know, that's so it, I'd rather be a fast diesel uh, than, a, you know, trying to whip myself into a turbocharged. I'm going to go down a, a metaphor. I, I don't understand that. But you know, <laughs> I'd rather be efficient. You know, that's what's most important when you as you get older, be efficient in the systems that you're using. Um, and then you're resilient. And then, then they're sustainable efforts. And FTP to me to labor this ftp when i go back to think about you know when i used to do time trials ftp the the um the important bit is that it's functional that you can sustain it there's no point in having a, an ftp test that you you literally collapse at the end and then you have to take the whole day off work because you so that's not functional at that point it's dysfunctional um you know and and I remember back in the day, my 50-mile time trial time, my 25-mile time trial, my 10-mile time trial, the actual average speed was very similar. Very, very similar. You know, they're probably a bit faster on the 10, and the 50 was a bit slower, but not that much. You know, they were very similar average speeds. That's functional. And that's how we cyclists used to use, in a sense, that functional threshold pro- power before it was called FTP. I'm not sure FTP has a lot to deliver to a lot of cyclists over a certain age, frankly. I, I, I completely Sorry. and I completely agree, Phil. I, I mean, I would put HRV at the top of the list, yeah. may, way before I would put FTP, um, unless you know, unless you are you know going to specialise in a particular area, and and as but even then, as you say, it's it's more about well, can you sustain it rather than you know, is it an unrealistic number basically? And I think a lot of people are trying to achieve an unrealistic number and the greater the number and so on. So I, I, I completely agree with that. It's um yeah, HRV would be my uh, would be my number one, not FTP. That would be down the, the back end of the list. And it yeah. comes back to um something that Jason and I have, have chatted about in terms of being you know overloaded with data or by the data. Mm. Um, and that's something that you, you allude to in the book as well, Phil, in that saying, well, you, you, you mentioned about one guy, you know, that if his power meter isn't working, he doesn't go for a bike ride. Um, and more than one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, 
and there is that sense of of uh if it's not you know if it's not on Strava you didn't do it um and Robin Brew uh the, the swimmer and then tri- triathlon coach when he came on he was saying that he tries to um take his athletes and get them away from their data and it takes them it takes them about 3 weeks of of trying going through cold turkey almost to get them to the point where they just go just go for a bloody ride and don't think about anything else. Uh, was that, there was that time when um, uh, Froome kept on falling off his bike one season, and it was because he was just looking at his. They, they speculated he just kept on looking at his power meter the whole time, and he kept on <laughs> missing little accidents in front of him and, and then crashing. So uh, yeah, safe. I, I well. think it, I think in the book it's called Paralyzed by Analysis, isn't it? I think yeah, yeah, and absolutely right. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, and I totally agree with you that you know HRV is way more important than 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 FTP unless you're doing something that is going to reward FTP is going mm. to reward and give you success in that. You know, if I was going back, if I started to do ten mile time trials again, fine, a twenty minute FTP is probably not a bad metric. Um, I don't have any plans to do that, but if I've got clients who want to get around a marmot or an etap or do a week long stage ride. Uh, you know, FTP is only of marginal importance to them. They, what's important for me, for them, is to build resilience in their chassis and to build some sustainability in their power delivery. And that's making, is actually making them very, very, very efficient oxidative athletes. Um, really, that's what I, that's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And one of the other areas that it kind of, I mean, you, you really delve into the cardiology bit and we've, we've, we've touched on that previously, but I was also struck with the references here and there, Phil, to how um, cycling and, and, and that sort of low intensity exercise can help us from a, from a sort of a cognitive perspective and what it's, it's, it's beneficial effects around things like Alzheimer's and so on and so forth. And I, and I wondered if you could kind of expand on that a little bit um, of what you sort of uncovered whilst you were uh, delving around with all these experts. Yeah. And again, I was sort of curating here, Jason, really. And, it, and I think it's uncontroversial that um, exercise, endurance exercise, and also to a degree high level exercise you know, improves neural plasticity. So, you know, your availance for Alzheimer's is largely, I think there's a very big genetic input. You know, you can't really, you can't fight your genes, but you can ameliorate the worst effects of it if, you know, by, uh, you know, dialing up the other stuff, all the other good stuff, diet. Uh, and one of the things you can definitely dial up is the right kind of exercise. And that does seem to provide a lot of protection because exercise is acutely inflammatory in the moment it's inflammatory but it's chronically anti-inflammatory mm. so we go back to that word again inflammation and inflammation you know it seems to be one of the drivers here if you can reduce the burden of inflammation in the body then you're protected against lots of illnesses and one of them seems to be cognitive issues so it's you know so you want to get to that you want the acute you want the acute inflammation followed by the chronic anti inflammatory effects of exercise and it does seem to have benefit seems to give benefits in terms of neuroplasticity now you know let's see i've got alzheimer's everywhere in my family so i'm just you know fingers crossed you know i i, I but I, I do think i don't think that's controversial anymore um and i and, and, and nigel stevens who's a friend and cardiologist i quote often in the book because he's very funny you know he says um one of the quotes i quote in the book is he says well look um, exercising, cycling at a high level into your middle age, um, what you're doing is trading uh, cardiovascular and cognitive health for the occasional orthopedic incident. I mean, I like this, that if that's the proposition I'm in, you know, it's like mm. I will sign that box. I will have the occasional orthopedic incident, and I do and have, for cognitive protection and cardiovascular protection. Um, but, but you also kind of, uh, which is something that I hadn't uh, hadn't thought of. I, I'm 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 a great believer in cycling outside rather than cycling inside. On the Zwift, I think Zwift also has a tendency to push people to you know do these hard sessions. But one thing I hadn't really thought of, which you alluded to really clearly, which is how much actually riding a bike. You know, if you think about descending in a in a in a group or descending at speed in a group. Actually, the cognitive load that actually happens whilst you're doing that is incredibly beneficial. 
I, I'm not sure it's beneficial. I think it's beneficial, Jason. I'm not, but it's. Um, I agree. I love the expression cognitive load. I wish I would have used that because I, I think that's right. It is a con because you're essentially you're controlling two gyroscopes, fast moving gyroscopes that are providing effect mm. onto the chassis and your body, and you're controlling those fast moving um, gyroscopes, navigating the terrain, um, and you're also having to make all these decisions about grip versus line. Versus the meteorology, you know, it's like the, it's a massive data overload into your brain. Then you're managing in real time at such fast speed. You're making these decisions, and then adding on another loads of other riders, and you've got to manage what they're doing and how it relates to you. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And and I, I personally think that's very good for you. Um, but also, I've heard from lots of other people who read the book. I mean, yeah, but that. I don't actually like that. That doesn't. That all I get from that is fear, and anxiety and worry, um, and that's a, a negative burden to me. Mm. Uh, and to that, I have to say, well, that's yeah, that's reasonable. That, that's how that affects you. You've got kind of got two decisions to make there: either get better at it. That's like skiing. It, you know, you've got to be taught it and learn it. Or yeah, I agree. If it's if you don't enjoy it, then don't do it. It's like snowboarding for me. It should be really really good fun, but. I, do you know what? I just don't like it, and it's it's it makes me anxious. I don't do it, so I totally understand that perspective. And I have heard from many people who really get quite stressed about cycling outside, and especially in a fast-moving bunch down a steep hill. Um, and I, you know, one has to respect that. Um, actually, and I do respect it because it, you know, you, you, you know, not everyone's going to is going to want to put the effort into perfecting that skill where they feel they're, that they're a bit happier and more comfortable. Mm. Um, but I do think if you can get to that space, that there is, you know, you're, you're, get, you're, getting, a, you're getting a real jolt to the brain from controlling, a, especially if it's off-road, a mountain bike or a gravel bike or a cyclocross bike, and you've then got all these other variables you're having to compute in real time. I do think it's really, really good for you. And I think adrenaline is very good for you in that kind of burst you know it's very focusing isn't it and yeah you know it certainly gets the you know the neurotransmitters firing so it's antidepressive isn't it you know when you a bit of adrenaline and you know it, 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 i do think it can be quite good for you uh sorry, sorry. to drop phil but those um no 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 you were talking about the how the, how some of the information about uh, heart changes in, in endurance athletes was was picked up by the press and reported. And in a similar way, talking about the Alzheimer's, um, we spoke to Professor Andrew Scott about um, one of the early podcasts about longevity, and um, he was saying yes, you know the the the, the Alzheimer's epidemic, if you will. Uh, yes, there are more people getting it because so, we're living longer, so just people are going to get it. But the actual chances, what he was saying, the chances of of getting it are coming down so so but that's not doesn't tend to be reported and how is it and, explained greg how does he explain that um he well he, as an economic as an economist um he's not too sure um <laughs> but uh, but it's it's more a case of of um well i, I can only think that it's just people exercising <laughs> um or there's you know we're able to treat it better we're, we're diagnosing it sooner and treating it better i don't know um but um i think that that there are more positive views out there than than than, than the press sometimes allows us to see um yeah. um but it's just you know just it mirrors a bit for me the the cardiac uh, uh perspective but in your book you say that you know aerobic exercise there is nothing there's no, no nothing near as good in the medical world um um that the, the aerobic exercise for for uh delaying or preventing alzheimer's yeah i i think i think if maybe i didn't flag this up enough but the book could be cycled could be subtitled there is no drug better than exercise i mean that that definitely could be a subtitle hmm. but it's you know, and I, and I, I absolutely firmly believe that, not just as an evangelist, but also as somebody that's spent way too long, you know, knee deep in in research papers. It seems to be the case. It's nuanced, but it also seems to be the case that the more exercise that you do, the better protected you will be, and the better your general life will be in terms of stress, 
in terms of relationships, in terms of everything, seems to be better when you exercise. The question is, where on the graph do you put your X? When, when to know when to stop, Greg? Mm. Um, you know, and, and to not do that extra half an hour of burpees or whatever it is you're doing. But you know, as long as you, as long as you call time on it at the right place, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're. It's all good, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by the Alzheimer's and um, cognitive protection. And we won't know, but in, I, d- I sense you're right, Greg. I sense in 25 years' time there'll be a great big panorama on who knew exercise was actually the drug we were always looking for. No, I'm serious. No, I, mean, no, no. I, I think you're, I think you're onto something. And I think that they'll be like, oh my god, we had the drug all the time, we just didn't prescribe it. It was exercise all along. Uh, I bet that's the case. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I'm hoping. Which kind of leads leads on, I think, to, to wrap up. And I know you you couldn't go into this in the book, and and this is this is a purely speculation and, and and your opinion. And but but I think it's worth asking you. We're all I think all three of us here recognise that this we're one giant experiment at the moment. No one quite knows because, as you say, no, there's not been a generation exercising to the extent that that we are uh, ever before. Um, and it was an interesting question that we kind of posed to a guy called Mikhail Rasmussen, who uh, is an anthropologist, economics uh, by training, investor in Chapter Three now. But we were sort of, yeah. what? How does he think things are going to play out um, as we, you know, as fifty, sixty-year-olds move into our seventies and eighties? And I just wondered if you if you had any thoughts on that, Phil. I heard him. I either heard him on your podcast or I heard him somewhere else the other being interviewed, actually. I thought he was very interesting. Hmm. Maybe it was on your podcast. Um, in, in terms of exercise, moving to middle age, you mean? Or? Yeah. How, how? I mean, obviously, we're in middle age now. We're in this experiment. Um, lots of us are doing it for the reasons of we would like to live um, – better lives not necessarily longer lives but better lives when we're sort of in our 70s 80s and potentially even 90s but i just i, I wondered how now you've had a chance to kind of delve into this area and, and really package it all together what are your thoughts of what you think might play out as we're all into our 80s plus i i think one thing that i think is certain is that our, genera- our generation X, generation exercise, will not stop. We will just keep going um, until we drop. And if we happen to drop while we're exercising, that's just all good, isn't it, frankly? <laughs> I mean, that you know, what really, I mean, but if that isn't the case and we just keep on going like the Duracell bunnies, then I think we're not in our 80s and 90s, there'll be we'll be able to connect ourselves to an Apple bike or a Google bike or whatever it'll be called. And you can pedal a bit and it will have a bit of electric power. And then at the end, it will give you the readout. Oh, look, you contributed 300 calories. It did. I think there's a whole, there's a whole slew of technology there where we're joined to technology that's designed to keep us mobile and keep us active and give us feedback on that. So that there's no reason why we actually have to hang up our cycle clips at 75, 80, 85, 90. We can just keep going and and we can enjoy all those benefits as we go into 80 and 90. And, and I, my father died two years ago, at 85, 86. And I would like to believe that we could have, enjoy much greater health, you know, than he did in the last few years. And I think that's possible. And I think and also there was somebody who said, and I don't know who this was, and I hope it's true. Um, but I heard that, and I think it was from a clinician, a doctor, saying that s- people who m- keep exercising hard, immoderately, into middle age and beyond, and just keep exercising, never stop, they don't tend to die the same deaths. They tend to just go. You know, they just they keep going, and then they go. That's done. They don't have these horrible, long, yeah. multi, multi-issue deaths where they've got you know, 173 pills a day and multiple conditions. That isn't, they just seem to keep going until they don't. And I know that's a very, seems like a very negative thing I'm saying, but I just don't think it is a negative thing. You know, I, um, I don't want to fade, fade quietly. Uh, This may, this may sound strange, but I'm, I'm reminded of a Metallica song (laughs) where the the lyric, the, the lyric is my, my life cycle dictates my death cycle. (laughs) 
and and that's very true. <laughs> yeah, if you if you carry on as we as we are doing, there's a very good chance we're just going to live a better life. The last years of our life, however long, however whenever that is, um, will just be better healthier yes more more productive more yeah that's and that's that's something to aspire to and also we talk we talk about our the previous generations not doing what we're doing now but just think about what we're doing in terms of paving the way for the next generation and might you know inspire hopefully inspiring my kids to keep do, to keep doing stuff as they get as they get older there's there's a blog post in that uh quote uh greg Sorry, so there's a blog post in that uh, yeah, song yeah. title that you've chosen there. <laughs> yeah. I just reminded me of a yeah. Sorry, we um, uh, it, it would go remiss, I think, before Greg asks our usual questions that we ask of every guest. Um, although he did ask me last week when we I didn't. Did me, I? Sorry, you did. No, that's all right. I'll forgive you. But um, it's it's Paris Roubaix this weekend. Um, First time, I can't, I can't believe we're saying this, 2021 is the first time there's a female race. I mean, it's ridiculous, but, but it's great to see that there's finally a female race. Um, and, I, and, I, and I thought, Phil, I couldn't resist um, asking you, you know, who, who do you think might be a, sort of the contenders for both, for both female and the, and the male race on the Sunday? Male race, if it rains, Tom Pickcock. Oh, Okay. Okay. I mean, it hasn't rained in the Paris Ray for many years, has it? No. Um, so if, if, and obviously it's in this different time of year, isn't it? Mm. It's normal, but apparently the forecast is rain, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, I do think, I think Tom Pickock is riding, isn't he? I think he is riding. I think he uh, is. He's in great form. Sixth last week in the world, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and he's just such a devastatingly great rider in those conditions. Um, he's so smooth. And even though you'd have to say he was quite light for the Paris-Roubaix, um, I think if it rains and it now comes down to a lot of machine control and efficiency, I think he's one to watch. Wouldn't that be amazing if he won it? Yeah, it would be. It would be amazing. Right, uh, Greg. Or were you going to give a, a female prediction? I, yeah, I'm. I'm not so sure. I'm. 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 I think that's much more open. I can't yeah. really predict that one. I think that's going to be. That's going to be a fascinating race. Um, and but I, you know, the women's racing, I find very hard to predict. I find men's racing very hard to predict. I thought the women's Olympic road race. I watched that. <laughs> I thought that was just phenomenal. I mean, I just thought. That, that was an amazing, amazing race. That one, frankly, it, it was. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think. Uh, I think I, the other thing about this being unpredictable, of course, is that they. It's a shame that they've never ridden Paris Roubaix. So it, it it adds another level of sort of yeah. uncertainty, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it it really does. It really does. So I can't predict that one. I think it's gonna. I do think it's gonna break up, uh, and I think it's likely to be you know a very long breakaway in the in the in the in the women's race. Um, uh, that, that I could be wrong about that, but I sense that it's going to break up early, first set of pave, and then it'll stay broken mm. all day. Uh, it'll be a uh, it'll be a small select group that get away and probably get quite a big lead. That would be my only prediction, and they might and the winner might well be Dutch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> is what I would say. <laughs> okay, so thanks for that. But um, we've got two questions for you now, Phil. Um, they are the Desert Island Discs of Exercise. Um, and basically what we want to know is if you could only do two types of exercise, what would they be and why? Uh, so other than cycling, Greg, or you mean including <laughs> cycling? Well, it, it, we knew cycling had to be, was going to okay. be in there. So it's cycling and another one. What would the other thing that you would do? So it would be cycling, mm. and I would like to choose paddleboarding because I think it's the absolutely perfect anti-exercise for cyclists. I just okay. think it's just alarmingly good for cyclists. Okay. In extension, balance, using a lot of trunk muscles, mm. but it doesn't do much for bone density. However, 
I would still, I'm still going to say with paddleboarding, I think paddleboarding is just the perfect exercise for cyclists. Well, J- Jason is a an advocate of, of that sport. So yes, he loves it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, for nothing, I mean, yeah, you're right about all the balance and all that kind of stuff, but actually it's just very chilled. And so it's very low intensity exercise where you can almost de-stress. So in that sense, I think it's a, it's a real, it's, it's, it's a have big got, plus for HRV, that's for sure. Have, <laughs> I got time to tell, have I got time to tell you a 15-second anecdote from my paddleboarding last yes. week? Yes, of course, yes. So I was out paddleboarding on the Thames last week on a beautiful Sunday, and it was absolutely glorious. I was just alone with my own thoughts, and I was writing an article and I, in my head because I was writing that day, and I was just lost in a world of my own thoughts, and I saw this shape on the on a log by an island in the tent. I thought, what the hell is that? Went over there and it was a very, very big turtle living in the Thames. Wow. And I went up to it to try and pick it up, as you do. And as I went over to try and pick it up, I got to about with about three feet of it. It looked at me and then just dived into the water at massive speed and, and then swam off. But it was obviously adapted to its environment. The back was all mossy with Thames moss and it was obviously healthy, obviously well nourished. And I'm going to say it was about nine inches across living in the Thames. Wow. Wow. And there was there was te- there were stories about this turtle living in this in, in this stretch, and I saw it, and that's to me. It's like I went back. I I honestly could have had a better experience than that experience. Well, um, that's that's a great segue into my next question, which okay. is which is which is this. You don't of, believe me, Jason no, doesn't believe me about the turtle. <laughs> no, I do, I do. I I, I live near Richmond uh, in Teddington and apparently there's a turtle here as well, but I've never seen it in all the times I've been out. I'll right. take you to the turtle that I saw. I know exactly where he lives now. And the, um, but this, this, this is the Groundhog Day of, of exercise. So if you could choose a moment, a turtle moment, if you will, um, in your from your past, a, a, a moment in a race, um, a moment in your train. What something happened when you were exercising, which you would want to relive, relive, sort of day after day, if you could. If you oh, could. That's a great question. What a lovely question. I think it would have to be. I mean, that's that maxim, isn't it? That youth is wasted on the young, mm. um, and I, I absolutely think that's true. And, and whilst I'm wiser now and more reflective now. There is nothing like that feeling when you're 25, 30, and it doesn't really matter what you do, you can't hurt yourself. You're in such great shape, such great form, that you're just immune to pain. So I'd have to go back to one of the criteriums or something that I did with Jules, me and Jules racing together, and it just, it was just all the stars aligned, and I couldn't feel pain. It didn't matter what I did or how many times I attacked, I just couldn't feel pain. And... Early on in the race, I knew I was going to win because it's just, I, it was just one of those moments, you know, never to be repeated, really. And there was probably in, probably in my entire racing career, I wasn't that good, by the way, but in my entire racing career, I probably had a dozen of those moments, 10 maybe, six maybe. But what those moments when you finish, and it's just like, what happened there? Why can't I bottle that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it would have to be one of those criteriums, uh, I think, um, at Eastway probably because Eastway was just the most amazing place so one of those summer Eastway criteriums Thursday nights or Saturdays where I just stars aligned and I couldn't hurt myself I know that's really cliched I'm sorry no it's not no no no, 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 no. It's, it, we've had such varied varied moments I mean uh, Mikhail was talking about a time when when he completely lost it in a race <laughs> his his moment where, where he he thought he was going to be able to do it made his massive leap off the front and then died, <laughs> died on his ass. And he said that was actually a big le- life lesson for him. So that's a, but you know, each to their own, each to their own. I, I can put some color on my one. That's a good one. My, my color is that I was always used to be Jules's lead out man. Cause Jules is a, my co-director here. Very, very good sprinter. Um, and so I would always be like co-opted into his lead out man. Cause I was quite a good lead out person. And we were doing an Eastway race one day and the whole plan was hold it together and then I'll lead Jules out for the win. Don't know what, I had no idea what was in it for me. And then we came round, and it was one of the times where they were running it clockwise, clockwise round Eastway, which is the irregular. They used to run it anti-clockwise. And it meant that the last corner was this really, really slow, tight hairpin. 
And as I came around the hairpin leading Jules out, Jules fell off um, and then shouted to me, go. And it's like that I went and I won on his behalf from the corner. And it was just obviously, <laughs> so, you know, and he, he, he arrived blooded at the line, but it didn't really matter because I'd won and, Fantastic. You know, he, him being covered in blood didn't matter at that point. Well, you've 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 won again because I think this book is great. I would urge all the listeners, um, yes. not just if they're cyclists, because I mm. think it has lessons across all sorts of different yeah, sports. Yeah, it, it does. Go and buy the midlife cyclist. As I say, it's available everywhere. Where you get your books from Waterstones, Amazon's, the local bookstore, whatever it is, um, go and get it. It's it's great. And Phil, thank you very much for your time today. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Um, And Greg, another announcement from our side. We now have a Facebook page and a Facebook group page. Uh, So um, we would encourage the listeners um, to get on and find us on Facebook, particularly the group page, because what we want to try and do is obviously get the community um, talking to each other, which will be which will be great. Not just uh, listening to us, but also talking to each other, sharing their stories, and and, and so on. So that would be uh, fab if uh, we can encourage that and get that going. Excellent. Thank you, Phil. Phil, thank, thank you, you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. You're welcome, Greg. Midlife Athlete Podcast is supported by Health and Fitness Solutions. Health and Fitness Solutions is a well-established and highly respected provider of physiotherapy and podiatry services based in the City of London and Harley Street. We take pride in being able to offer a wealth of experience and expertise in dealing with a wide range of muscular skeletal conditions, from acute sprained ankles through to the more complex and long-standing issues that have failed with treatment elsewhere. We are dedicated to getting you better. For a full list of the services we offer, visit our website, hfs-clinics.co.uk.